This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're all doing well, and I hope that you're enjoying the signs of spring as they slowly reveal themselves. For one thing, we've turned the clock forward and I am really enjoying the extra daylight. The air feels a little bit warmer each day. Migration is in full swing, and I'm seeing a lot more birds in my yard. After the long, cold, and dark days of winter, it feels so good to stand outside in the sunshine. It feels like my soul is being renewed, and I have fresh hope and inspiration for the gardening projects I have planned for this coming season. And I can once again take up one of my favorite pastimes, walking through all of my gardens in the early morning, carrying my cup of green tea, and savoring all of the new life coming up through the ground. I think we have a great show for you today. Today, we'll be talking about all of the great work that Dr. Joel Gehring and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are doing to prevent birds from colliding with communications towers. And now for some interesting news. Birds are smart. A surprising new study is showing that birds like ravens have intelligence that rivals the great apes. Scientists from Germany recently conducted testing on ravens to measure the birds' social skills, tool use, and spatial memory. The ravens were tested at 4 months, 8 months, 12 months, and 16 months. The ravens showed an impressive array of cognitive skills, many of which were fully developed by the 4-month mark, showing that birds like ravens develop and retain skills at a very early age. In fact, the 4-month-old ravens performed some cognitive tests as well as adult gorillas and orangutans. The ravens also perform similarly to orangutans and chimpanzees in social intelligence. While the scientists believe the ravens would score lower than apes in physical cognition tests, the ravens did much better than expected. In fact, when it comes to problem solving, ravens follow the gaze of other ravens in order to find food. This study comes on the heels of yet another recent body of research conducted by German scientists showing the discovery of microcircuits in the brains of birds. This new finding suggests that while birds may be wired differently, they may be fully conscious and possess self-awareness just like humans, according to Science Magazine. And I just wanted to add on a personal note, if you're a wildlife rehabilitator and you worked with birds, then you already know all of this. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the pine siskin. 
The pine siskin is a dark and light brown bird with white stripes and bright yellow markings on its wings and tail, and is a member of the finch family. Slender and small, measuring roughly five and a half inches long, the pine siskin is one of the birds you are most likely to see in your backyard garden if you live in Canada or the northern part of the United States. The siskin, also referred to as the nomad or pine chirper, is a gregarious bird that forms large flocks and is best known for its tendency to hang upside down on branches, pecking at pine cones to extract tasty seeds. Siskins inhabit the Canadian boreal forest. They are extremely fond of that area's heavy crops of pine and spruce cone seeds. They also enjoy the cone crops of cedars, hemlocks, birches, and alders. However, it should be noted they are true omnivores and will happily eat tree buds and insects like grubs and spiders, as well as sap from trees. Siskins run into trouble when seed crops fail in the northern regions. When this happens, huge numbers of siskins are forced to suddenly move southward in search of food. This is called an eruption. An eruption is a migration that extends far beyond its normal borders. Over this past winter, siskin flocks traveled as far south as the Gulf of Mexico and Florida in search of food. Some siskin flocks landed on the island of Bermuda, astonishing ornithologists. Over the last several months, bird enthusiasts in New England have reported record numbers of pine siskins at their backyard feeders. Experts from the American Bird Conservancy are saying this is one of the biggest eruption years in recorded history. In fact, this year's eruption was so extensive and so sudden that pine siskins, who normally migrate during the day, were documented flying at night. In the bird world, food is fuel. Pine siskins are remarkably resilient and can fill their crops, which are really an expandable esophagus, with enough seeds to get through nearly six hours of temperatures below zero. Believe it or not, the siskins crop can hold 10% of its body weight in food. In addition, the siskin has a very high metabolic rate that allows it to withstand minus 50 degree weather, making it one tough little bird. Siskins have the unusual habit of feeding on the salt left on the ground by public works trucks that sand the roads when conditions are icy. They will also attempt to chip out minerals like calcium from cement with their beaks. The male siskin is famous for its aerial acrobatics, designed to impress females during courtship and mating. The female constructs a cup-like nest out of weed stems, bark, and twigs, and lines the nest with fur and feathers to create a soft area for the nestlings. A typical siskin nest contains three to five eggs, and the eggs usually hatch within 13 days. Siskins often produce two nests per season. A flock of siskins is referred to as a trembling. The oldest known pine siskin lived to be nearly nine years old. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Dr. Joelle Gehring. Joelle is a biologist who works in the Division of Migratory Bird Management with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. She is one of the leading experts working to prevent bird collisions with communications towers. There are tens of thousands of communications towers located throughout the United States, primarily used to transmit signals for television and radio stations, along with transmissions from cell phones. 
Over six million migrating songbirds are killed each year colliding with these towers, especially during peak migration. These birds include the tiniest of our beloved songbirds, like vireos and warblers, along with ovenbirds and catbirds. It is springtime right now, and migration is in full tilt as we speak about this issue. Joelle has worked tirelessly with the Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Aviation Administration to conduct studies and construct protocols for the private owners of communications towers that will help keep birds safe. Her findings and recommendations and the collaborative efforts of the FAA and the FCC are preventing millions of bird fatalities every year. In 2015, the FAA issued regulations requiring new towers to use exclusively flashing lights, as opposed to the problematic stationary lights that attract migrating birds. The FCC, FAA, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are also encouraging private owners to voluntarily change towers built previously to 2015 to adopt the new lighting standards. Okay, and now I'd like to introduce Joelle Gehring to the show. Joelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, could you tell me and our listeners all about your background and and how it led you to your job with U.S. Fish and Wildlife? Yes, I'm very excited to be working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Migratory Bird Program. I have spent much of my career working on migratory bird issues, mainly those issues related to where humans and birds might encounter a conflict. And I really enjoy working with stakeholders, those people on on both sides of an issue and finding solutions that work for both migratory bird conservation and for us as, as humans. That's great. And tell me, why is this issue so important to you? Well, I have been working on it for, uh, my son and I were just talking last night, for about 18 years. I've been working on the issue of migratory bird collisions with communications towers. And we all know when we work on something for so long and put a lot of heart and soul into it, it becomes pretty important to us. And one of the things that I love about this issue is it provides us with an opportunity for a win-win. I've worked closely with the communications tower industry and bird conservation groups, and we were able to find a solution that works for both the tower owners and for bird populations. And so that's something that makes it extra special to me. Right. So now uh, bird collisions with communication towers, is this just cell phone towers or does it also include traffic control towers at airports, that kind of thing? Yes, well, birds can be attracted into any lit structure, whether that be a porch light or a cruise ship or a tall lit structure, such as a communications tower. And communications tower is a pretty big umbrella that includes things that we use every day and we have been using since the late 1940s, such as TV and radio communications, our police and safety communications go through communications towers. And yes, you mentioned airports. There are lights on on airport and airfields uh, that also attract in migratory birds as well. So yes, any tall lit structure can attract in migratory birds. I see. So you're saying it's not just the tower themselves, but it's the lighting on the towers that poses a problem? Yes. Communications towers are lit with obstruction lights, which is very important to aircraft safety. And those lights either flash or they don't flash depending on the specific recommendations of the FAA. And 
Some of the lights are red at night and some of them are white at night. Those tower lights that are red and not flashing tend to attract in more migratory birds than those that tower lights that are indeed flashing. Okay, so just so I understand this, you're saying stationary lights that don't flash on and off are more of a problem? Yes, that's what our research has found. Lighting on any structure can attract in night migrating songbirds. That tends to be the group of birds that we see surrounding some of these lit structures. That can be as something as short as a light post or a porch light and something as tall as a communications tower. And when we see tower lighting that is not flashing, so a steady burning light, that tends to attract in more migratory birds than a structure that has a flashing light on it. So these stationary lights, why do you think that is? Why are the birds attracted to the stationary lighting? Well, we are not sure what birds are actually thinking when they're attracted into these lit structures or any type of lighting. But we do understand that when birds are exposed to red light, they are unable to use the magnetic fields of the earth for navigation. So exposure to red light actually changes their ability to use those magnetic fields. And that could lead to confusion during a migration. And we know that white light includes all different colors of light, including red. So what is it about red lights? What what is contained in the red lighting that throws off their ability to to read the Earth's magnetic field? How is it interrupted? Well, I look to to the biochemists for those types of research questions, but it actually does change the chemistry. When when the red light comes through their eyes, it actually changes the chemistry of their brain and reduces their ability to use those magnetic fields. Wow. Okay, so can you tell me how big of a problem is this collisions with towers in the United States? Do you have any statistics for us? Yes. Well, as we know there, if we look out of our window at night, we can see many communications towers. And as we drive through the landscape, we see at night, especially, we are able to see the typically red or white flashing lights of those structures. So we know that there are thousands of communications towers across the landscape. And recent research by Longcore et al. did estimated that there were about 6.6 million birds colliding with communications towers in the United States alone. If we add Canada, it becomes 6.8 million birds per year colliding with communications towers. And these are not, uh, you know, rock pigeons or house sparrows. These are night migrating songbirds. These are the birds that are incredibly small, really. They're the size of our thumbs, and they are migrating from sometimes the Arctic all the way down to South America. They have incredibly long distance migrations. And these are the birds that we are seeing as fatalities underneath communications towers. So the warblers and the vireos and the thrushes. Right. Now, do you have any statistics on raptors? Do raptors get into trouble with communication towers as well? Yes. Occasionally, when my colleagues and I, Al Manville and Paul Curlinger, were conducting research in Michigan, we had over 100 technicians out collecting data underneath those communications towers every morning during migration seasons. And we did find a a few raptors and we found some turkey vultures as well, but very unlikely for them to collide. Their vision is good and, and they're not using the same 
migration techniques that some of these songbirds are. They tend to migrate more during the day. Okay. So do you find that the most collisions with towers occur for these songbirds during peak migration times? Absolutely. Yes. We tend to see these birds typically don't fly a lot at night throughout the year, but during migration, their biology changes and they start using stellar constellations of the earth. They start using sunrise and sunset and polarization of light along the horizons and sometimes landscape features as well to navigate these long distances. And it's at those times that they become attracted into the lights of communications towers, especially if we have inclement weather. Maybe they might start off the night with great view of the stellar constellations and there's a big migration push for that night, many birds up in the air and then cloud cover might cover their um, access to viewing those stellar constellations and suddenly they're in a bad spot where they are migrating and they have other lights that they might be attracted into. Right. So basically for a flock of songbirds, which could be, you know, six, 700 in a flock, they are flying in a zigzag pattern, sort of like a um, an obstacle course trying to get from the northern region where they raise their young, and often they do have their young with them, following them down to warmer climates so they can get through the winter. So it sounds to me like a case of, tell me if I'm wrong, this flock of six or 700 songbirds kind of plows into a communication tower. Some of them hit the tower and some of them make it around and past the tower. Is that, does that sound accurate? We do have some radar data that can actually, in a sense, visualize these birds being attracted into tall lit structures. And we do see them actually making a deviation from their otherwise somewhat straight line path to their their destination and being attracted, making a deviation from their straight path and coming toward lit structures such as a communications tower. So yes, and then they tend to circle around or spend a lot of time around that lit structure. And I have been underneath those communications towers on nights that are foggy and heard the the flight chip notes and the alarm notes of birds circling around communications towers. And when they increase the amount of time they spend around this structure with guy wires and steel structures, they tend to collide or they're more likely to collide and to possibly even become exhausted from that circling around that structure. We, when we were doing research in Michigan on this issue, we had acoustic detectors at a nearby tower that was lit with white flashing lights and a tower that included red flashing lights and non-flashing lights. And we had a significant difference in the number of birds that were circling around or spending any time near that white flashing light tower compared to the tower that was lit with both flashing and non-flashing lights. So it really emphasized to us that not only are we seeing more birds underneath the communications tower with not flashing lights, but we are actually can document that with the acoustics, the sounds of those birds at different types of tower lighting, even when they're just a mile apart, they were only a mile apart. So that shows us that the tower lights were actually attracting in birds. So I have to ask this question, why are red lights even used? That's a good question. And we look to the experts at the Federal Aviation Administration to help us understand that. And they were very helpful and explained that that was 
the traditional way of lighting communications towers before we even understood uh, you know, that birds may or may not be attracted into those sites. The FAA does an excellent job of using different colored lights to signify to pilots where obstacles may be. And so red lights were chosen for communications towers. And then a little bit, and that was, that was determined in the, the 1940s and 50s. And then later on, white lights became used as well. White lights always flash when they're on communications towers. And so that's helpful. But if you've ever lived next to a structure with white flashing lights, not everyone likes to have that white flashing light near their home. They find red to be a little easier to live with. And so a lot of the tower industry members and tower owners were trying to do their best to fit in with their landscape better. And so they used red flashing lights. And at that time, the FAA required that they use a combination of both flashing red lights and non-red flashing lights on a structure. But after learning what we did learn with the bird biology research and bird collision research in Michigan, we were able to talk with the FAA and help them understand what we were seeing with bird collisions. And they were able to uh, come to a better conclusion that would be bo- that would be good and safe for our aircraft and our pilots, as well as for migratory birds. And so in 2015, the FAA released a new advisory circular which provides recommendations for obstruction owners to light their obstructions, including towers, with safe lighting and marking. At that time, the in 2015, the FAA determined that and, and released to the public that towers were allowed to be lit with only flashing lights. And a matter of fact, after 2015, all new new communications towers are required to be lit with only flashing lights, towers that are taller than one. 199 feet, that is, or 150 feet, that is. Okay. So are you saying that they're considering changing the red lights to a different color, like blue or green? or Some of those other colors are reserved for airfields to alert to pilots where they can land safely, et cetera. So we will continue to see, as it, it's my understanding from the FAA, that we will continue to see towers lit with white or red lights, but now we're switching to a completely flashing light system on communications towers. And that change took place in 2015. Now we still see a lot of towers on the landscape that are lit with a combination of flashing and non-flashing red lights. Those are towers that were built before 2015. And so we are reaching out to the tower industry to help them understand that not only can they extinguish those non-flashing lights on towers taller than 350 feet, but they can also reprogram those lights to flash if a tower's shorter than 350 feet. And in doing so, they will not only reduce their tower lighting costs, they will reduce their maintenance costs, and they will simultaneously reduce bird collisions by as much as 70%. So we really have found a win-win situation for the tower owners and for migratory birds. The tower owners can reduce their construction, maintenance and energy costs while simultaneously reducing migratory bird collisions by as much as 70%. That's great. So just to reiterate, just just so I understand a little better and my listeners understand, the FAA is saying that they need those red lights for safety. Absolutely. You talk to the FAA, to help them understand the problem. And they agreed to go from stationary red to flashing red. That is correct. 
But well, by working with the FAA, they were able to do some additional research to learn that if a tower is taller than 350 feet, that those non-flashing lights may not be necessary. The tower owner may be able to extinguish those non-flashing lights and still provide enough safety for aircraft. So once they reached that conclusion that yes, it was indeed safe to extinguish those non-flashing lights, as long as there were enough flashing lights, then the tower owners were able to work with the FAA on an individual basis, get permission to extinguish those non-flashing lights, and then immediately start saving money and reducing bird collisions. I should ask, does the height of a communications tower have anything to do with the number of birds striking them? Absolutely. And as we know from studying bird biology, these birds are flying when they're migrating you know, in a a range of altitudes, but it can be as, it can become lower altitudes, such as, you know, 600 or 800 feet, if cloud cover kind of pushes them down or if inclement weather causes that. And it, when they're taking off for migration in the evenings and settling back down in the mornings, they're flying at lower altitudes. And so there are times when the taller towers are more likely to be in the paths of migratory birds. So those taller towers, not only are they more likely to be in the paths of migratory birds, but they also, because they're taller, they have more guy wires, just a matter of physics to hold them up. They have more guy wires. And so we did find an increased number of migratory bird collisions at tall towers. And we found actually five times more migratory bird collisions at towers that were taller than a thousand feet compared to towers that were more mid height, like maybe 470 feet. Do we have an idea of at what height migratory songbirds tend to fly? Yes, there have been, there's been some research on that topic and songbirds, you know, we could see them as high as, you know, 3,000, 4,000 feet, but they tend to fly a little bit lower than that, more in the probably 1,000 to 3,000 feet range. It depends on the species and the wind currents and the other weather factors going on. So we do see a difference among the the type of tower. A monopole, we call that, is more like what you might imagine a flagpole to look like. And those do not have guy wires. So as we mentioned, the taller towers tend to have more guy wires required. So there's more of an opportunity for bird collisions, whereas the shorter towers can be made up of an unguide structure such as a monopole or a simple lattice structure that does not have guy wires. So now do we know about bird behavior? Let's say a flock of six or 700 songbirds flies into a communications tower. Do, and obviously some birds are killed or injured. Does the flock tend to stay there to try to recover the lost birds or do they just keep continue flying on? We're not really sure what the individual birds do regarding their flock mates. But we do know that those non-flashing lights tend to attract in migratory birds and they do tend to circle. And this can be a mixed species flock. We'll see many different species circling around a tower on the same night. So we're not really sure the interaction among the individuals, but we just know that those non-flashing lights attract in more and more birds. And do you have any numbers about, are there any particular species of bird that tend to have more of a problem than other species? Absolutely. 
again, I mentioned the night migrating songbirds tend to be those that we see as bird fatalities underneath communications towers. Specifically, many of these projects are finding red-eyed vireos, oven birds, and this is of course in the east here, and then uh, great catbirds. In Michigan, we found a lot of great catbirds and black pole warblers. This is an interesting situation because these many of these bird species are declining. Recent paper by Rosenberg et al. in 2019, we found that bird populations are decreasing. And since 1970, bird populations have decreased by as much as almost 3 billion birds. And these are some of the species that we're talking about. 13 birds of conservation concern are suffering annual mortalities of 1% to 9% of their population at communications towers. And this includes some of these birds that are on this list of having decreased significantly since 1970. They don't tend to be, as we mentioned, rock pigeons or house sparrows. These are some of these birds we're, we're hearing about in the news that are precipitously declining in their populations. And this is a great opportunity for a win-win that works for the tower industry, saves them money. No one has to climb the tower to extinguish these lights. They can do it from the ground. It requires just a few, a couple of steps. They need to individually work with the FAA, which is a, a routine procedure for both the FAA and the tower owner to work with the FAA to say, hey, we want to extinguish, we want to update our lighting. We want to become current with the 2015 guidance and extinguish our non-flashing lights. We want to save some money. We want to reduce bird collisions. The FAA almost always individually looks at the project, says yes. Then the tower owner simply has to update the Federal Communications Commission database. And then they can simply go to the communications tower and literally flip a switch on these towers that are taller than 350 feet and immediately start reducing their energy costs, reducing their maintenance costs, and immediately start reducing migratory bird collisions. So it truly is a win-win. I've worked with the tower industry. There are a lot of great people out there saying, this is working for us. This is saving us money. We feel good about it. And the easiest part was driving to the tower, flipping that switch, disabling an alarm that told us our lights weren't working. We said, it's okay. And, and immediately we were reducing our costs. So it truly is a win-win for everyone. I'm very excited to mention that Canada has followed the United States' example. And it also allows their communications towers owners to extinguish those non-flashing tower lights if they would like to do so. So that's another opportunity as well up in Canada where many of these birds are coming from during migration. I'd like to thank Joelle Gehring for joining us today. Dr. Gehring and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are doing a phenomenal job protecting our songbirds. For more information about this issue, please go to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife website at fws.gov and type communication tower in the search engine. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook.
And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.